DNA has become a crucial evidentiary component of many criminal trials in the United States today. But while DNA is often viewed as the gold standard for the identification of a suspect, the widespread collection and storage of genetic information raises a number of legal concerns. By March 2010, 8 million Americans will have had their DNA collected, many against their will, and retained by law enforcement in a DNA bank. We are joined now by Professor Sheldon Krimsky and former ACLU science advisor Tanya Simoncelli. They are co-authors of a book called Genetic Justice, which is published by Columbia University Press, and I'm very pleased to welcome them to today's Underreported segment. Hello. Hi there. How, how long has DNA identification been used by law enforcement, Sheldon? Uh, it started in England uh, in the mid-1980s when it was developed by a scientist uh, in Britain. And what kinds of crimes, Tanya, does, uh, are you, was it initially used to help solve? Initially, um, in the United States, um, the states started to enact DNA data banking laws in the early 1990s. Um, and in 1994, Congress passed a law um, that established the CODIS system, which is the Combined DNA Index System. And that system allowed um, the, for the sharing of DNA profiles across state and local jurisdictions. And for all of those cases, um, in those initial years, all of the databases were strictly limited to uh, people who had been convicted of very serious violent crimes, um, particularly murder or um, very serious sexual offenses. Um, but now what we've seen is an extraordinary expansion uh, since that time um, to the point where today um, hundreds of thousands of um, innocent people are actually on these databases in particular um, as a result of several states um, and the federal government having expanded their data banking laws to include people who are merely arrested. So it's not just a matter of whether somebody is accused of rape or murder. That's right. No. In fact, um, there are about a dozen states now that have um, expanded their databases to include anyone who's been arrested of any felony. Um, that includes things like writing a bad check or getting arrested at a uh, demonstration um, so so we're talking of uh, an extremely wide variety of crimes and m- many many crimes where you would never um you would never um anticipate using DNA evidence to solve that form of a crime. Uh, Sheldon DNA evidence didn't sway the jury in the OJ Simpson case. Have things changed since then? Absolutely. Uh you know at that time there was very little concern about how evidence was handled about the chain of custody of evidence, about contamination. We, uh, it, it was really not well developed. There was no accreditation for laboratories. Uh, there were horrendous mistakes made at major laboratories in Houston, Texas, uh, in Chicago. Uh, and we've learned a lot from those mistakes. Now, in the past, it was fingerprints, and because no two fingerprints are alike, that were the gold standard. Uh, DNA, of course, has the the same thing going for it, doesn't it? Well, first of all, the DNA evidence uh, or forensic DNA profiling is not uh, exactly like fingerprinting. For, uh, the the um, police departments collect a biological sample, and they keep it. There are certain countries that require that they destroy the biological sample. 
So once they get that sample, they develop a forensic profile. And uh, it is pretty much uh, universally accepted that two people's DNA, the full DNA, uh, would not be identical unless they were identical twins. But what police do is they take a, uh, they take a certain segment of the chromosome and they identify 26 spots on it. So not the complete not 3 the complete billion DNA. base pairs uh, right. that we have in the human so genome. So there's a probability estimate that two people would have the same exact profile, and some of those numbers are exaggerated. Uh, so that's the way it's done. Well, are there different ways of analyzing DNA, Tanya? Uh, because uh, I'm assuming that going through those 3 billion base pairs would just be too time-consuming. That's right. And uh, there are different ways, and there have been proposals at various times about expanding the number of um, locations that we look at um, out of certain concerns that that, uh, perhaps the 13 um, pairs of loci are not um, sufficient for making sure that you don't have inadvertent matches. Um, so that is one set of concerns, but there are there are many other types of, um, you know, that's one type of error that could occur where you have, you know, two people who match at random. Um, but there's how often whole, does that happen? Uh, well, it's hard to know, but um, uh, but I think the more the more disconcerting sorts of errors um, that we know are occurring and and must be occurring much more frequently than that, are the types of false positives that you can get from um, basic human errors that are associated with genetic testing. So these can include things like um, contamination that can occur in a laboratory, uh, mishandling of the evidence, um, sample switches, um, misinterpretation of the tests. Do they degrade? Do they have to be kept refrigerated? They do degrade over time. Um, we have gotten better over the years at preserving DNA evidence, and DNA is fairly stable as a molecule. But if, um, but there, but certainly it does degrade over time, and it depends on the, upon the conditions in which it's kept. So, for example, if a DNA sample is subjected to, you know, sunlight or uh, heat, um, it will degrade much faster. Sheldon, uh, do. Uh uh, people often get convicted on DNA evidence alone? Actually, not uh, on DNA evidence exclusively. There's usually other evidence. And in some countries, and in the book, we have profiles uh, of other countries like Germany, Japan, Italy, the United Kingdom, Australia, uh, etc. Some countries actually prohibit uh, just using DNA evidence by itself to convict somebody. And why is that? Well, because it's so easy to plant DNA evidence. It can so easily uh, to contaminate uh, a crime scene with DNA evidence uh, that you just need to have a full picture of what uh, what the other evidentiary reasons are for conviction. My guests are Sheldon Krimsky and Tanya Simoncelli. Uh, they have coll- collaborated on a book called Genetic Justice, DNA Databanks, Criminal Investigations, and Civil Liberties. It's published by Columbia University Press. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Well, it can be used to convict somebody, but we often read in the papers that uh, prosecutors and uh, various uh, law enforcement agencies are reluctant to go back to DNA samples if somebody claims 
uh, he or she is innocent. Uh, doesn't this cut both ways? Absolutely. And in the book, we talk about different concepts of justice. And there certainly uh, is a need for uh, people who are incarcerated and who have a claim of actual innocence to have access to their DNA. In some cases, we pointed out it was just an accident that the DNA was preserved because many states don't have requirements for the preservation of DNA, so somebody cannot actually prove their innocence. And Tana, you point out that uh, DNA evidence is not enough to free many suspects. Uh, Why are prosecutors and judges reluctant to release someone even if the DNA exonerates them? Uh, Well, that's a good question. Um, I think what we have here is a bit of a double standard in the system, and that's one of the really serious concerns. you know, when when I was talking earlier about some of the errors that can occur in DNA testing and the possibilities for false positives, um, and that's true. And and anytime you get a match, um, you should be there are there are several questions that have to be asked before you know how definitive that match is. Um, there are also certain complications with DNA testing where you can have mixed evidentiary samples or you can have um, partly degraded samples. But when you get a non-match, when somebody's DNA doesn't match, when their DNA is simply not included in a, in a crime scene sample that is, a, you know, a solid sample that has the full, that you can get a full profile out of, they, you know that they cannot be included. They, they cannot be whoever left that uh, sample. Um, so a non-match is much more definitive in a certain sense, um, if you will, than a match. And yet we have this strange um, situation in the criminal justice system where there's reluctance to reopen those cases, or even when, uh, even when the case is reopened and it shows that um, the DNA evidence excludes that person, there's a reluctance even in, in some cases to set that person free and to exonerate that person. Um, and I think that just points out that... Um, for whatever reason, there's um, an interest in using this technology more to um, prosecute rather than to um, exonerate, even though in some ways it's quite simpler to exonerate. Sheldon, haven't some defense attorneys uh, been able to at least try to solve the crime themselves by going to DNA databases? Well, surely they have. I mean, uh, there's the New York Innocence Project and there are innocence projects throughout the country. They have to use philanthropy to raise the funds uh, for exonerating someone, whereas, of course, the criminal justice systems have public funds uh, to prosecute. So there's a real imbalance there. But over 250 people in the United States have been exonerated, and it is not always DNA that exonerates, as, uh, as Tanya has mentioned. Sometimes the defense attorneys have to get more. They have to find who the actual criminal is. And in some cases, they've had to do the testing of someone who's a suspect but was not included in the police investigation. It was interesting last night, the the Innocence Project came up in uh, the, the latest segment of The Good Wife uh, but uh, in, in, in our popular culture, shows like CSI, Law and Order, the, the DNA almost always solves the case. Uh, does that mean that juries right now uh, assume that uh, if it's true on their television shows, it's true in the real world? 
Tanya? I, I think we do have a situation where there's a cultural um, a cultural issue here where there's this, this sort of presumption of infallibility um, and the presumption that um, if the DNA matches, that must be the perpetrator. <laughs> um, I, you know, it does appear that that has um, gotten into the minds of, of some who are in the criminal justice system. For example, when DNA was first introduced uh, into the criminal justice system, there was a, there's a story about um, an expert who testified that there was zero chance that there could be a false positive in DNA testing. And, of course, any responsible scientist would, would never say something like that, um, especially today when we've seen actually several cases where mistakes have been made. Um, but it just shows to you this sort of, this sort of um, notion that this is a sort of a silver bullet technology. And, of course, no technology can be, especially anything that relies on human execution to, um, to carry out. Sheldon, who are the, the uh, DNA experts who testify on, on, at trials? Are they real? Are they scientists usually? Well, if you're, uh, if you're a good prosecutor or a defense attorney, you're going to get somebody with the right credentials uh, who understands uh, the, uh, both the possibilities and the fallibility of DNA and who's honest about the limitations as well as, uh, as, the, uh, as the methods that can be used most effectively. Although there are people who just uh, make almost a living from going from trial to trial being experts. That's true, but now the judges have a gatekeeper role under a Supreme Court decision where they can uh, weed out people who don't have the right credentials. Tanya, you mentioned earlier that there have been cases where false DNA evidence has been planted at a crime scene. How is that done? Um, actually, I don't know that we know of specific cases where DNA evidence has been planted. Well, um, I, I, I've think. heard about people who have uh, uh, con- collected uh, uh, semen in a, in a condom and then uh, spilled it on a crime scene. Yes. So um, what, what we have heard is that there have been uh, prisoners, for example, have been overheard coaching one another on how to do things like that. Um, so uh, there's also a... a an amazing case of a story of someone who was in prison and uh, was subjected to DNA testing and as, in an effort to thwart, um, thwart the system, he actually smuggled out a, um, a sample of his semen in a ketchup container, like a small ketchup packet, and paid somebody, his family paid somebody to implant it so it looked like, she, and then she claimed that she was raped. And so of course, he couldn't have raped her if he was in prison at the time, and the idea was to cast doubt on his case. Um, luckily, the, the woman actually um, confessed um, to having done this, so it, it was revealed. But this is the kind of, I mean, I'm not sure that everybody's going to those, those great lengths, but it's an example of, of, uh, of how DNA can be planted actually far more easily in some ways than fingerprints. Sheldon, you opened your book by talking about a case in Germany where authorities were searching for a woman called the Phantom of Heilbronn, whose DNA kept turning up at crime scenes across the country. What happened in that story? Well, that's a case where the German police were uh, spending over a decade trying to find a so-called serial killer who they knew was a woman because you can detect that uh, pretty well from, uh, from the DNA. And uh, eventually, uh, they would have kept on believing that it was a woman and it was one person who committed all these crimes. 
but her DNA had also appeared, or this DNA also appeared in an archaeological object. And uh, as a result, somebody began thinking out of the box, and they eventually got to the manufacturing plant uh, where a woman was putting together the swabs that are used, and she was contaminating of the swabs, which is why it appeared in all these places. I think the contamination problem is a very powerful problem because the new methods of DNA analysis involve really minuscule amounts of DNA so that if I put my fingerprint on this table in front of you and walk out, somebody could swab it, get a few of my cells, and then, like a Xerox machine... Uh, manufacture enough of my DNA to develop a profile. My guests are Sheldon Krimsky, who's a professor of urban and environmental policy and planning and adjunct professor of public health and community medicine at Tufts University, author of eight books, and also uh, the uh, he has uh, consulted for the Presidential Commission for the Study of Ethical Problems in Medicine and Biomedical and Behavioral Research uh, Tanya Simoncelli has uh, worked for six years as the science advisor to the American Civil Liberties Union, and now she is working for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. They have collaborated on a book called Genetic Justice, DNA Databanks, Criminal Investigations, and Civil Liberties. It's published by Columbia University Press. We will continue our conversation after we take a little break. <music> We're back with Sheldon Krimsky and Tanya Simoncelli. Their book, Genetic Justice, DNA Databanks, Criminal Investigations, and Civil Liberties, published by Columbia University Press. So let's talk about those DNA databanks. When did they start popping up at law enforcement agencies in the United States, Tanya? So they started uh, in the early 1990s. Um, states started passing laws to collect and permanently retain DNA from people who'd been convicted of violent crimes. Um, and then in 1994, as I said earlier, um, uh, the federal government, uh, Congress passed a law that um, established CODIS, which is the Combined DNA Index System. It's basically a software system that allows for the sharing of DNA profiles uh, among uh, and across different jurisdictions. So that's really where things started, but we've gone a really far away from that point because those those initial statutes were all tightly uh, uh, constrained. They were limited uh, to uh, those DNA data banks were limited to people who had been convicted of very serious violent crimes. Whereas today, we're seeing scores of hundreds, um, thousands, in fact, of uh, innocent people being added to these databases because the, the the statutes have been expanded in some cases to include people who've been merely arrested. And Sheldon, that's because of the that uh, Shel- that broken windows theory that we heard about in the past, or uh, the or the theory that um, led us to believe that if somebody uh, was a uh, a fair beater on the subway, they were likely to have been involved with other crimes. If somebody writes a bad check, it's likely that they. Uh, have committed a different kind of crime as well? Well, I think that some of the uh, criminal justice system believes in recidivism and they believe that uh, if you pick up somebody for breaking a window, that someday they're going to rape somebody. Whether or not uh, that's conclusive evidence, uh, I doubt it. 
Uh, but the, uh, the really the important thing here is that people in criminal justice would like to have a universal data bank. I mean, they, they believe that if they had everybody's DNA, they would solve more crimes. That would be like the FBI's fingerprint system. Yes, except the big thing about the DNA uh, collection is that they hold on to the biological evidence. So there's a peculiar, I think, bifurcation going on because in our society we are now paying a very close attention to uh, our medical privacy, uh, genetic privacy. We have a law uh, called GINA, the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, where people can't use your DNA willy-nilly. Uh, at the same time, criminal justice is using DNA and the biological samples, uh, you know, rather facilely without, without any controls. So these DNA banks, in theory, somewhere down the line, could uh, provide all sorts of information other than whether it is me who left that thing. They, they could find out whether I uh, have some kind of uh, propensity to a certain illness or uh, – I don't know, um, yeah, well, whatever, that I'm the child of somebody who... Paternity issues, uh, whether you have a predisposition toward a certain genetically-based disease. Uh, Tanya, does it work the way it does on shows like CSI? You put the sample into a computer and, and a picture uh, of a match pops up on the screen? Uh, no, it doesn't work quite like that. I often think about Minority Report and the little a little round ball coming out with a name on it. Um, it doesn't work like that at all. Um, it's a lot more complicated, and DNA testing, while it's a very, it's a really uh, great technique and it's incredibly useful um, for law enforcement, um, it also is, it can be complicated. Oftentimes at a crime scene, you'll have not just one person's DNA um, in a, in a, biological sample that's been left behind, you'll have a mixture of samples. You might have a, um, you know, more than one person because because the techniques have gotten so sensitive that it's actually quite easy to pick up someone's DNA, you know, very easily. So you might get mixtures of two, three, four people's DNA, and that has to be that has to be sort, sorted out during the analysis, and that can cause a lot of complication. Is that, um, is that impossible to do if, if I put my finger on... Uh, on top of a fingerprint that Sheldon has left, will somebody be able to sort the two? It depends. Um, there are techniques for sorting them out and trying to figure out whose alleles go with who, um, but they're not, um, they don't always, uh, it, there's a certain subjectivity in it at, when you're looking at the, the actual uh, results. Um, one thing I wanted to say um, from what you, the point we were making earlier and what Sheldon was saying about the expansion of the databases, I think one of the things that's, that's driving the expansion is this notion that the bigger the database, the better. Um, if we just keep expanding these databases, we'll catch more criminals. Um, you know, intuitively, that seems like the right idea, but in fact, the data that we've looked at shows um, that it's not necessarily true that if anything, um, at best, we're sit looking at a situation of diminishing returns. And that's because um, what, what drives the success of these databases is not how many people you have, how many so-called offenders or arrestees that you throw into the database, but instead how much DNA you can collect from a crime scene. And it turns out that fewer than 1% of, of crimes um, yield a DNA sample. So... So we can put everybody we want in the database, but you're, the more people you put in, it's not going to necessarily lead to more hits or more 
uh, investigational leads if you can't uh, put any if, if the, the problem is if the you know what's What's limiting the success of the database is our ability to collect DNA from crime scenes. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, in in this year, uh, just by 2010, 8 million Americans have had their DNA collected and retained in a law enforcement DNA bank. Actually, it's, it's actually I that. checked today. It's, it's uh, the uh, FBI lists 9 million people or 2.9 percent of the U.S. population. And uh, do they can they just take it from you if if somebody says uh, I want to I want a swab of your DNA? Do no, I have to give it. Uh, no, uh, if they walk over to you and say I want a swab of your DNA, and you're not uh, involved in any crime. Oh, let's say I've I've been a fair beater. Uh, it, it depends on the state, but some states, if you're arrested, they can take your DNA. In other states, uh, they would need a warrant. They would need a court warrant uh, to uh, take your DNA without your permission. What about New York? Well, New York has, a D- has had a DNA database since 1999. That's 11 years of collecting DNA samples. That's right. So, so here's where we get into some of the um, inconsistencies in the law. So generally speaking, the taking and analysis of DNA is considered a search and so, generally, the police need to have a warrant um, supported by probable cause to take your DNA. Now, on the other hand, we have these giant databases, right, that we just said 8 million people are on these databases. They've been growing exponentially, basically doubling about every two years, um, if you look nationally. Um, so the reason courts have generally upheld the operation of these databases on the notion that if you've been convicted of a crime, you have a lesser expectation of privacy. So if you've been convicted of a crime, you know, it's, it beca- it's okay that it's an automatic situation where the police then require that you submit your DNA and that your DNA is on the books for the rest of your life. Um, so, well, 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 let me ask but, you... But um, here's where the rub is. So yeah. if DNA is a search... Um, What's where this becomes very inconsistent is ha- the, the, where we've crossed the line into people who are innocent. So when you're arrested, if you've been arrested, you're presumed innocent. Um, so the question is, how can it be constitutional that police can take DNA routinely from people who are merely arrested? And in fact, the courts have, you know, three out of four courts who've looked at this issue so far have declared that it is unconstitutional. But haven't we done similar things with fingerprinting? Yes, but as Shelley was um, describing, fingerprints are quite different from DNA. So fingerprints uh, are two-dimensional. They, all they can really tell you about, all they can be used for is really identification, um, whereas DNA, as we alluded to earlier, can be used to, um, to tell you a lot of things about somebody. Um, there have been over a 1,000 genetic conditions um, uh, that have been associated with our DNA and that there's now genetic testing available for. So um, so we're talking about a very different uh, situation from fingerprints in terms of the potential privacy uh, invasion. Shelley, what about uh, abandoned DNA? Can the police follow you around and wait until you spit on the street and then collect that? They certainly can in the United States. Uh, while they can't go into your house and grab some DNA from your bathroom... They can follow you around at a Starbucks and uh, pick up your cup that you've uh, dropped. It's interesting that uh, uh, th- almost all of the countries 
uh, allow, ex- except Germany, uh, allow police to uh, collect surreptitious uh, DNA. Uh, when you think about it, your DNA is probably one of the most personal things you have, and yet there is no restriction on this surreptitious collection of your DNA. Well, you write that the court's acceptance of arguments for the use of abandoned DNA could have spillover effects well beyond law enforcement. In what way? Well, in the United States, for example, supposing you were a candidate for office and I didn't like you for some reason or other, and I picked up your cup and I had your DNA analyzed and I found out that you had an allele, you had a piece of, of your genetic chromosome, your chromosome that made you, uh, let's say, more vulnerable to Alzheimer's. Forget it. You wouldn't have a career. There's a, the, our ideas of privacy keep on shifting, don't they? Certain genes are being patented by major companies uh, uh, without the people who provided those genes even knowing. But then we also have uh, uh, Facebook. We have, uh, we've been hearing about warrantless wiretapping. Uh, is, isn't the public a little more sanguine about these, these things today than they were in the past? Tanya? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Either one of you. Um, I don't care. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we are seeing, you know, technology challenges. Um, it's not the, you know, DNA is not the first time technology has challenged notions of, of privacy. Um, what's interesting about the abandoned DNA case is the courts have generally allowed it because they've likened your saliva to trash. So they've said, if you spit on the sidewalk and the police, you know, are following you around and they see you spit on the sidewalk and they pick up your saliva, well, you know, you abandoned it. That's, that's garbage. But what they seem to be failing to recognize is that we don't care about our saliva. What we care about is the information in our DNA. And, you know, and unless we see, you know, unless we recognize the informational content of the DNA as what should be left to, as, you know, that's what the privacy concern is about, right? We don't care so much about whether someone picked up our saliva, but neither do we expect someone to actually send the saliva to a laboratory to have it analyzed. So that's where the courts have, I think, been missing the boat, where, where they have looked at this issue. Um, and, you know, it goes back to what Sheldon was saying about um, an inconsistency there between our medical um, you know, medical privacy and GINA, the Genetic Non-Information Non-Discrimination Act that we just passed, clearly the public wants and expects privacy in their DNA. And yet in the law enforcement context, we seem to have run, you know, roughshod over that basic notion of privacy. I am never spitting on the street again. I'll just carry around <laughs> tissues. Well, I hate to break it to you, but it's not just that you're <laughs> constantly shedding your DNA and you would have to keep all your cups with you after you visit Starbucks as well and lots of other things. Even fact, I'm burning everything. Have to wear a bubble suit. <laughs> Sheldon? Yes, I, I was going to say, why should an individual be concerned if, if they are law-abiding? What does it matter if their DNA is on a national data bank. I mean, let's suppose your DNA, Leonard's DNA, is on a national data bank. The problem is that you may get a, a knock on your door at 3 o'clock in the morning because some crime scene DNA didn't find yours but found a close fit to yours, mm-hmm. okay? 
it happened that the that they often do familial searches, which is they can't find an exact hit. So they found somebody that has a closed hit. So now they're knocking on your door at three o'clock in the morning and investigating your family, even though what it was is you know there's nothing except the closeness of the DNA. Now we don't have much time, but uh, are we the worst in the UK? Aren't children as young as ten who are picked up for misdemeanors having their DNA placed in a in a national data bank? The UK was the first to expand its data bank to include arrestees. Um, interestingly, um, last year the European Court of Human Rights struck down uh, the UK's database and said that it was in violation of Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the privacy provision. Um, so the UK is now um, trying to figure out what it's going to do. It's proposing um, still collecting DNA from arrestees but destroying the samples, um, all of the samples, the biological samples, and um, retaining the profiles for a fewer number of years for Tanya, people who are arrested. I have to leave it there. Tanya Simoncelli, Sheldon Krimsky, their book, Genetic Justice, DNA Data Banks, Criminal Investigations, and Civil Liberties. It is published by Columbia University Press. Thank you both so much.